If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 22, please. Turn to Luke 22. As you're turning there, I'll express my thankfulness for the opportunity to open up God's Word with you. Uh, I have to admit, over the years I was serving as interim pastor, I, I prayed fervently for a new pastor, uh, more than you did. Um, and it was specifically on this day when I was standing up here preaching and the smells of the chilies and the soups would waft through the auditorium and I could tell you were totally distracted and you were thinking about lunch. And to show you that God has a sense of humor, months ago Abe asked if I would preach on October the 1st. And then somewhere along the way we decided to have the chili cook-off on October the 1st. So here I am admonishing you, ignore the smells, ignore your stomach. And uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's look at God's Word together today. Luke chapter 22, I'll begin reading in verse 24, and I'll read down through verse 30 uh, as we begin. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and precious word. Let's bow together. Father, we come to you this morning uh, with gratefulness and thankfulness in our hearts as we continue to sing and contemplate your, your majesty and your, your glory of who you are. And then our, our hearts are even uh, reeled in even more as we contemplate what you have done for us. What you've done for us doesn't define you. It's who you are. And what you've done for us is a simple reminder of your greatness and of your love and of your mercy. And we sit in this room this morning as, as, as debtors to that. We, we sit in here with, with, with nothing in our own hands to, to, to literally offer up to you. We come with open hands to receive what you have given to us. And so as we come to this opportunity to open up your word and to examine these, literally the, the last hours of our Savior's earthly life and his final moments of instruction with his closest followers, I pray you would use these, these words and the setting and the, the uh, situation and everything surrounding it to take us back to this first century while yet living as we really are today and acknowledging that the same Christ who, who stood and sat and kneeled before these flawed sinners is the same Christ 
who opens his, his arms and welcomes us today. Lord, help us be captivated by that. Help that to rule in our hearts more than anything else. May you be exalted today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 22, and we're working towards the conclusion of a journey as a church that we began back in uh, January, of cha- uh, January of 2022. And in this chapter, as, as Abe instructed us a couple of weeks ago, Jesus has, has come into the city. He's come into the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. And he has just shared, as we looked at two weeks ago, he's just shared his, his last Passover meal with his disciples. And moments after, he, he tells them that his, his body was going to be broken like this bread and, and that his, his blood was going to be spilled out like this cup poured out to usher in the new covenant. He, he startles them in verse 21 in telling them that one of those sitting at table with them, one of those from the inner circle, one who has is, who is shared in his most intimate moments, one of them was going to betray him. One of them was going to be defined as a traitor. It was certainly a startling revelation for, 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 for that group. A group had already proven to have a short attention span over the years, but it results in the 12 beginning to immediately accuse each other in verse 23 regarding who it would be that would betray the Lord. See, the initial response to his statement was, was obviously grief and shock. It was a, a punch in the gut to hear that They had been living with a traitor. I I seriously doubt they were as concerned about someone betraying Jesus, but there's been a traitor amongst us. And it did take long for for grief to turn to suspicion. And then that leads us to our text for today, beginning in verse 24. And what I want us to see uh, as we as we explore this text uh, from, from verse 24 down through 38, are two things. First of all, Jesus gives hope to his proud and flawed followers. And then secondly, Jesus prays for his own. Jesus gives hope to his proud and flawed followers. And Jesus prays for his own. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, when you really consider the, the chronology of everything that has just transpired in what we consider today, looking back, as one of the most intimate, most, most uh, uh, unusual, most, most, most telling moments of all of, the, of, the, of Jesus' life, much less the Passion Week. A moment that many of us would just love to transport ourselves back to and just be a, a fly on the wall in that upper room. It's incredible, is it? They just, they, that his closest companions, the ones who for three years had been, had been watching from a front row seat as he lived a selfless life to others, at that moment of all moments, they devolved into a self-promoting session of bickering and fighting. Jesus had just poured out his heart and told them what was yet to come with, with, the, with the weight of the cross on his mind. And here they are. Not irreverently, but I, kept, I, I wondered throughout the weeks as I kept reading this, must the thought have crossed his earthly mind, his human mind? Is this really the best that we had? <laughs> Father, is this really the best? 
Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me, and the disciples start pointing fingers. Well, I, I bet it's you. <laughs> well, how could it be me? I bet it's you. No, it wouldn't be me. I'm the greatest. Oh, no, you're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. Remember what I did? And Jesus just sits there. <laughs> like, can you believe this? Now, granted, this isn't the first time the disciples had gotten into this exact argument, right? Uh, you can look back in Luke chapter 9 if you want. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 43. And I, uh, not ironically, it was when Jesus talked about going to the cross there as well. When he spoke of going to the cross, and in in fact, let me just read this to you, Luke chapter 9, verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. And then an argument arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. How quickly can conversations about the glory of God and the glory of the cross turn to the glory of self? Have you seen that in your own life? Have you witnessed that in the lives of others? When, when, when God intervenes and God does something unusual, God does something special, there's some grace-filled moment. And whether it's you or someone else, it's just so easy for us in our humanity to, be, to begin clamoring for the credit. God does something, and we kind of want to slide in there and say, well, that was because of what I did that God did something. Instead of just stopping and even stepping further back and say, what a great God we have. How quickly our flesh is distracted from God's glory to wanting to hoard the glory for ourselves. And this was the case of his most intimate group of followers. So Jesus uses the time to instruct them about what greatness really is. In verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus is simply explaining the, the way of the world. When, when, when people are in a position of authority, it can, it can go to their heads. And it's something that we often observe in our own culture. and we talk, we talk about it in our own setting. In the kingdom of the world, greatness is usually equated with power and the ability to rule over people. The word benefactor is a, is a Greek word, that, and it speaks of one who has honor conferred upon them for doing something some special service. In other words, it's not a person who serves for the benefit of the one they are serving. It's a person who serves so that they can get the glory of being considered a servant. That's what Jesus calls this mindset of the world about greatness. Jesus has called out this behavior around him many times throughout the the Gospels, telling the, the guilty that you have your reward. Uh, He's told them that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And that's what he's doing. He's addressing that kind of a mindset. And the behavior of his disciples in this moment was the way of the world. But Jesus, instead of coming down with a a hammer, he he slides in and he, he gently reminds them that you're different. I'm different. And you're my followers. And you're to be different. 
verse 26, but, but not so with you. You can almost hear him pleading. The world is like this. The, 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 the kings of the Gentiles are like this, but not so of you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I, I am among you as the one who serves. Can't you see the difference? In the world, men serve so that they can lead. In the kingdom of heaven, men seek the position of leadership so that they can have a greater capacity and a greater platform to serve. In the kingdom of God, true greatness is evidenced by the capacity to sacrificially love God and love others. Jesus said it this way. He said, to be great, you have to become as the youngest. That's because in the culture there, the youngest were considered the, the least important. Uh, you didn't let children make important decisions. You didn't let children weigh in what was going to go happen. Important decisions were reserved for those with, with experience and wisdom. And Jesus said, in order to be great, you had to seek the glory of a child. Well, that's an oxymoron. If you, if you wanted to be a true leader, you lower yourself. You be a servant. You see, in the world, the master is always the greatest. But Jesus reminds them of his own legacy as a servant among them. He uses the phrase, one who serves, three times in this short passage alone signifying the, the work of Jesus in their own midst, both on that night and in the previous years as they ministered together. In fact, you know from John's account of this very same setting that Jesus actually concluded the meal by doing what? By taking off His outer garment and wrapping it around Himself and literally washing the feet of His own disciples. Empires of this world conquer by the power of the sword, but Jesus will conquer with a servant's towel. This truly great one will soon endure humiliation and death, but at, as a result, what will happen? He will be given a name that's above every name. But the primary message here of this part of the text is not about Proud disciples really need to serve more. Okay, we, can, we can make that message. That's a great moral lesson for all of us, and we can find that uh, embedded in other texts. But that's not the primary message of this part of the text. The primary message is this. A loving Savior keeps and blesses His own. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Just like at the supper earlier, Jesus has the, the future on His mind. It's weighing Him down. He, he reminds His disciples here of an authority that awaited them in the kingdom. I'm going to do for you what my Father has done for me. I mean, think about this. On the eve of His gruesome crucifixion, He is still a Savior of hope. 
literally hours before they were going to scatter and leave him and betray him and, de- and, and deny him. And he's going to lay down his life and go to a cross. Hours before that, he is still consumed as a loving Savior of giving hope to his own. As he discusses in this discourse of the bread and the cup, he, he is anticipating the kingdom which his Father had given him. He's anticipating a banquet meal that he will one day eat with all of us in his kingdom. He was looking past the painful reality of the cross to the promised joy of the kingdom. Hebrews 12 put it this way in talking about living a life of endurance for those of us who are followers of Christ. It says, how do we do do that? Hebrews 12 says this, you look unto Jesus, right? Why? Because he's the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God an anguishing savior was still giving hope to flawless selfish followers Jesus says to his proud followers do you want something to look forward to Do you want something to carry you through these coming days? They're going to be difficult. Do you want a glimpse of joy to help you through? Because you have stood, because you have stood with me on earth, you will sit with me in my kingdom. And not only that, but you will sit on thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. These men will rule and reign with Christ. The apostolic authority that they're about to receive is going to carry them into the future kingdom. And Jesus had granted them to sit and rule with Him. Because because while everyone else was going back to their farms and everyone else was turning and going back to their families and to their own comforts, those men chose to leave it all and follow Jesus. And Jesus wants them to know that they will be rewarded. Jesus gives hope to His proud and His flawed followers who endure. And friend, Jesus offers hope for you today. As flawed as you are, as as, uh, convoluted as your own mindset is of, of wanting to serve self and following after your own selfish ambitions, Jesus gives hope. If you endure, there's a place for you. He will keep you. He will help you. And He will walk with you all the way. The second thing we see is that Jesus prays for his own. What a roller coaster of emotions this whole setting must have been in the upper room. From the thought of the Passover feast that they, that they thought, the simple Passover feast that they were going to celebrate together and gathering in that room to the announcement of a, a betrayer in their, own, in their own midst to the arguments about who was the greatest and then, and then Jesus' gentle rebuke and correction But then the promise that they were going to rule and reign with him forever, if they endured, everything must have been up and down. In fact, this must have been a sky-high moment. But Jesus knew that in just a few hours, everything was going to be crushing and crashing back to reality. They were only a few hours away from from reality setting in. They were only a few hours away from the events of the trial and the crucifixion. And Jesus knew this. No one was going to be more humiliated than Peter. So what transpires is perhaps one of the most sobering, I think, overlooked moments of the final hours of of Jesus' path to the cross. In verse 31, Jesus begins by crying out to Peter by 
by his given name. The name that he had before Jesus gave him name, the name Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now it's interesting in this, in this passage that the word you there in verse 31 is plural in the original text. And so Jesus is telling Peter that Satan has desired to have all of the disciples. He's desired to have all of them. Apparently Satan made this demand of God the Father, similar to the picture that we, that we are more familiar with in, in the book of Job, where Satan is pictured as having access to God to make some sort of demands to him. But I want you to notice a couple of things though. First, Satan has a lot of power. He desires to destroy I mean, in John 16, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world, right? In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls him the the God of this age. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls him the authority of the air. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. He he holds them in a snare until it's released by the gospel. And and, and as with Job and his family, we we know that Satan can can take a life. He could destroy health. He can torment demons. He, he, He can cause natural disasters. He's a serious spiritual threat that should be approached with with sobriety and prayer. He is a real and great power. But secondly, Satan's power is only by the permission of God. You see, there are not two superpowers in this world battling it out. There's God and everything under God. Okay? The, The creator God of this universe is the only superpower. When Satan desires to have disciples of Jesus, he must go to God first. The words of Jesus that Satan demanded to have you implies that Satan cannot touch us beyond what God permits. Jesus tells Simon in verse 31 what Satan intended to do to all the disciples, to to sift them like wheat. The act of sifting wheat is an image of violence. Peter and the disciples are going to be shaken. They're going to be broken. The circumstances and events of the the hours and days of follow that were going to take place were were so severe that the disciples are going to be tempted to, to separate. They're going to be tempted to fall apart. You see, Satan desires to destroy faith. And this remains Satan's main goal today. To destroy faith. Ultimately, it's not important to Satan whether you're healthy or sick or whether you're, you're rich or poor. That's not important to Satan. Those are just tools. Satan wants to sift out our faith. If he can do that by suffering, he'll try that. If he can do that by wealth or poverty, he will try that. And Jesus pictures Satan as a farmer shaking Christian in his sieve, trying to tear them apart from their faith. And some, some 30 years later, in 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, passages you are familiar with are, are, are recorded, Peter would picture Satan as a prowling, roaring lion who can devour anything but faith. You see, the only person that, can't, the only person that can fit through Satan's sieve is an unbeliever. The only person that can fit down a lion's throat is an unbeliever. 
It is a reality that God is superior to Satan in every way, that Satan submits to the power of God, and that God's true children can never be destroyed by the wicked one. It's a reality that a crown of life awaits those of us who endure. But the greatest encouragement from the text to me occurs in verse 32. Where Jesus, I can imagine Him eye to eye with Peter after telling Him of Satan's desires. Tells Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Friends, it's encouraging to know that, that God is infinitely stronger than Satan. And that if we walk by faith, we can endure. And He will give us eternal life. But how much sweeter is it to know and to consider that Jesus Christ and saving us from our sins doesn't just stand back to watch and see if we have enough strength to endure to the end. If we have enough strength to endure trials and the temptations and the discouragements of this life. No, this Savior saves us and He keeps us and He prays to His Father for us. The word you hear is singular actually in verse 32. I prayed for you, Simon. He asked God to do what needs to be done in order to preserve you from destruction. And Jesus is completely confident that His Father will answer His prayer because he says in verse 32 and when you have turned i know you're going to fail you're going to fail three times and when you have turned back go strengthen your brothers jesus knows that simon's going to deny him three times he says that here in just a second but but he doesn't consider that denial to be utter failure that satan is after it's certainly sinful. It's a temporary weakness. He is submitting to fear. But as you will see and we will see in the weeks ahead, it's followed quickly by bitter tears of repentance and turning back. Jesus knew Peter would turn from his sin. Why? Because he had prayed for him that his faith would not fail. This father granted Satan the power to sift Simon. But in response to Jesus' prayer, he did not let Simon He didn't let him fall through Satan's sieve. And you know what? God will never let any of His children fall through Satan's sieve. You see, not only is God willing and supremely able to save forever all of us who trust Him, He also conspires with the Son to keep us trusting to the end. We are never left without a shield against the enemy. Nor are we left to just hold the shield of faith simply with our own strength. God always sees to it that the faith that has the victory and the faith that His children need, they will have. I can't help but think this was on Peter's mind. Again, years and decades later, when he recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. Jesus prays for His own. Jesus prays for you. Simon Peter, I prayed for you. My Father and I have conspired to hold you tight so that your faith will not fail. And friend, that same promise applies to all of God's children. Lay hold to it. Be encouraged by it whenever you start to doubt that Jesus prays for you. And your trust in God will endure to the end. But notice this in verse 32. Jesus tells Peter, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In short, the only thing Satan is going to be able to accomplish is actually as a testing ground to prove that your, your faith is legitimate. It's authentic. Peter, you're not going anywhere. You're certainly going to have a rough few days. But you're going to come back. And when you come back, you're going to have a message of hope and encouragement for your brothers. Your brothers aren't going to go through exactly what you're going through. Not all of us go through the same trials and tribulations. Some go through more. Some go through less. But you'll have the opportunity to instruct and encourage and point others to Christ who has kept you and who prayed for you. You're not going anywhere. You're going to have a rough couple of days. And when you come back, you're going to have a message of of hope for your brothers. And we don't see the message here in this specific text. But guess what? The rest of the New Testament is filled and certainly bears the encouraging word as the gospel explodes forth. It wouldn't, be in a, it wouldn't be an interaction with Peter without his pride coming through, right? Verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go to you to both prison and to death. He, he wasn't lying. It, wasn't, it just wasn't then, though. And Jesus said, Peter, the rooster's not going to crow this day until you deny me uh, three times. Until you deny three times that you know me. Peter is so confident in his own willpower, his own determination, his plan, his resolve, his own self-discipline maybe. I'm glad none of us are. This is just Peter. This only happened at this moment in time. This is the only time it's ever happened that we really do rest in our own preparation. We rest in our own talents, self-discipline. I'm a strong person. And admittedly, Peter, is, Peter has actually some reason to be confident. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, Peter was the only one, right, that stepped out of a boat. And when Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, it was Peter that spoke up, right, and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So before we go to a lot of Peter bashing here, let's, let's make sure we give him a little bit of credit. This was, he's, had some, he's had some really stellar moments. But you know Peter's willpower is going to fail. And Jesus is saying, Peter, I know you think you're strong, but in less than 24 hours, your strength's going to fail. And then Jesus warns all of his disciples that a massive change is coming. Look at verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. 
He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. In other words, things, things are different now. Verse 37, for I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. It is enough. Luke records two earlier occasions, uh, chapter 9, verse 3, and 10, verse 4, when, when Jesus sent out his disciples to, to go preach and to serve the, and to, to give the gospel of the kingdom. And, and he told them at those two times, in chapter 9 and 10, to, to not take provision with them. He didn't want them to be weighed down. He didn't want that, that to be consuming them. And, and the, 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 the point was that, that the hearers and the people who, who, were, who were there were going to be readily welcoming them. This was all new. There was not much of a threat. This is Jesus, the great storyteller and he, the miracle worker and the healer. And if, if people who know him are coming, yeah, we're going to welcome him. They're going to be welcome into our home. So you, you don't need to worry. But things are changing now. All throughout this journey to Jerusalem, I've been trying to tell you, things are about to change. And now with his arrest and trial and death imminent, he knew that their ministry experience was going to change. And he quotes here, he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 53, the, the song of the suffering saint, a song, a song about himself. And he quotes that, that, that phrase from that long and lengthy passage. I wish we had time to kind of explore it more, but you, you know it well. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Why? Because that's how he's going to be treated. Literally in moments. Isaiah 53 is about the one who is high and lifted up, but the one who is also going to be despised and rejected by men. It's about the one who is, who is pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. It's about the one who is a sacrificial lamb. The one who goes silently to slaughter. It's about the one who is righteous. The one who is true, but is counted as a transgressor. So that he may be a substitute and bear the penalty of sin and atone for man. Jesus is saying, guys, read Isaiah 53. That's me. That's me. I'm going to be a transgressor. Oh, you're not going to be a transgressor. They're going to, they're going to kill me. They're going to hang me between two thieves. I'm going to be amongst the transgressors. The disciples respond to the warning by saying, Hey, Jesus, we found two swords. And again, one of those moments that Jesus just must have in loving kindness shook his head. It's not about the swords. Two swords against the, the whole might of the world? Against the, the gates of hell? Two swords to fight against death? 
all of this was about to begin an assault on Jesus. And they were proud that they'd found an extra sword. It must have been surreal to the humanity of Jesus that his disciples still didn't get it. And therefore, he breaks off the conversation on the subject with a simple proclamation it's enough. The time for teaching and prophesying is rapidly coming to an end. He has a responsibility, he has a loving responsibility to go to the cross. What's our takeaway? If we're honest, we can all identify with the actions of the disciples, I think. We are the proud, right? We are the tempted. We we fail. We fear. And many times we miss the, the big picture because of our own selfishness in our hearts. We are them. And even as those who have been transformed by the, by the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we still can recognize and we should recognize how flawed we are. And at, in those moments, it's also easy to dwell on our inadequacies. It's very easy to, to be consumed with our failure to the point that it sometimes can even paralyze us from seeing what God wants us to see. Here's the good news. As great as the power of our flesh is and as great as the power of the the wickedness in this world is and as great as the power of the wicked one is, Jesus' power is greater. Peter's failure was great. But you know what? Jesus' faithfulness was greater. Peter denied Jesus and for a time he falls away. But guess what? Because of the love and the power of Jesus, he's going to be restored again. In fact, you know this, he became a key leader in the early church. He preached the gospel and he led with great boldness. He went to prison because of his commitment to Jesus and he did die because of his commitment to Jesus. The transforming work of Jesus is pretty impressive. Be sure the reason that Peter was restored and the reason that he endured and the reason he became such a force for the gospel was not because of Peter's own strength. It was because of the grace and the strength of Jesus. Satan demanded Peter's soul, but Jesus interceded and said no. Friend, in the midst of your current trials and your tribulations, your times of discouragement, maybe your fear, anxiety, and uncertainty, I want you to know this, that you have a Savior who is interceding for you. Jesus died and rose again, and He ascended to heaven, and He is now at the right hand of the Father. And until He comes again, even right now, at this very moment, He is interceding to the Father on your behalf. Our high priest still intercedes for us today. The reason he saves to the uttermost is that he always lives to make intercession. And though we are finite, 
He is infinite. And though we are temporal, He is eternal. And He prays with the ease, with His omniscience and His omnipotence, perfected through His own human suffering. And He is praying for you right now. Take heart. I can't think of a more comforting thought. Jesus gives hope to His proud and His flawed followers who endure. And Jesus prays for His own. A few years ago, I came across this song, and it's, just, it's one of those that just has stuck with me. Rest, I'm not going to sing. I'm going to quote. When I am weak, I lift up my eyes to see my Savior plead for me. When fear closes in and doubt sows a seed, I know my Savior pleads for me. When sin rises up and I fall to my knees, I see my Savior plead for me. Storms may rage on, but this is my peace. I know my Savior pleads for me. Of your love, there is no doubt. Of your mercies, I am sure. Jesus knows my need and for me intercedes. All my hope is Christ. Friend, we have a loving Savior. No matter what, and no matter what trial or no matter what state you find yourself in right now, if you're one of His own, He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. If you're one of His own, He won't let you go. Father, we uh, wrestle with these kind of thoughts because we Sometimes the, the weight and the, the, the reality of our own sinfulness and our own wickedness, and it can cloud us so much that we don't even look through that to see knowfulness that there's a Savior that's, that's pleading for us. And I pray that for those of us in here that know You, that have placed our faith in the, the saving work of, of Christ and Christ alone to save us, our hopeless our hopeless souls and restore us to, to the Father. I pray we would rest in that, that we would be encouraged by that, and we would even be motivated by that. That our Savior prays for us. Of course, uh, if there's those here that don't know you, we, we grieve for them and we pray for them. And we plead, we plead to you for them that they would see their sinfulness and their hopelessness. And they would cry out to you. Father, may we walk by faith this, this journey you've given us called life. Not with our eyes fixed on our path or on our feet, on the trials and the struggles around us. May, may, we, may we traverse this path that you have given and ordained with our eyes fixed on you. May we do this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.